very transparent. They don't, they don't do any backdoor discussions. Everything takes place right in front of the mm. individual. So right, they're not because going to the back room and saying, "Okay, he looks he looks uh, like he's schizophrenic to me." What do you think, Joe? No, all of that stuff happens right with the family, right with everything. So they're totally transparent. If I could just interject for a second, yeah, because really, if you're having a psychotic break, oftentimes that's accompanied by paranoia. You have people go out in the other room talking about you. You know, uh, then your paranoia may be justified. <laughs> yeah. And the the um, the people the the staff that have come to the person's home, usually it, they have a peer to peer person. That's somebody that's been through one of these breaks and has managed to um, survive it. Mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't say survive it, but managed to become completely functional again and knows what it was and how to handle it. So there's a peer-to-peer person, much like the shaman that is given to um, a young person having a break in an indigenous community. So there's a mentor like that. And the other thing about it, these, so there could be a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and one of these peer-to-peer people. And they um, discuss right there with everybody. It's completely transparent. They may be arguing about the treatment. They may be saying, well, I don't know. I, I, my feeling that should, we should do this or my feeling we should do that. And somebody said, well, I'm, this is why I'm thinking. They're, they're talking about it with everybody. There's no, it's, as I say, complete transparency. So it's, it's, it's fairly unique. They work in a team. They're at the person's in the own the person's own environment, so they get a lot of success with that, and it's something we can learn from. But there's obstacles, <laughs> and the obstacles are insurance. It, uh, insurance uh, doesn't um, ask or doesn't allow people to work in teams. That's what I've been told anyway. Um, and I still need to learn more about that. But the way the insurance is set up, the way our whole system is set up, mm-hmm. it's more for a one-on-one. It's more for quick visits. We've interviewed, you know, a lot of people that are that have been in the trenches for 30 years in public um, health that handle these people coming in and say, you know, we used to back in um, the late 70s, early 80s have a caseload of about 12 where we could really spend some time with these people. He says our caseload now is up to 60 to 70. And not only that, we have to fill out all this paperwork. And he says the paperwork is so daunting that you end up having to um, fabricate some of the answers um, just to keep your funding And so he says, even the auditors that come in, they know you're fabricating because they had to fabricate before, because usually the auditors are ex-psychologists that have moved on to auditing. Underfunded um, um, system uh, that, that really doesn't allow some very common sense things from taking place. Yeah, so what I hear, the underlying thing that I hear you expressing, Phil, is, is uh, in, in our culture, in Western culture, the economics clashing with really our humanity and our treatment of those individuals who 
our, you know, I'll say it again, as you've taught me, uh, our gifted healers, leaders, potentially in a community. And so it's the economics that really are driving the treatment of things. So what, 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 it boils down to the question, what are we valuing? What do we value? You know, what are we valuing? Well, here's the, here's the kicker, Joel. It, it really isn't economics if you look at the long term. In the short term, mm -hmm. yes. yes. But if you look at the long term, 56% of the people in prison are, have a mental illness of some sort. 25% of the homeless do. A person in prison costs the taxpayers between $300 and $400 a day, right? Um, a person who goes on SSDI, and by the way, 1,100 people go on SSDI for mental illness every day, 250 to 300 are children right mm. now. Think of that. But every, especially a child that goes on. But say you go on when you're 20 years old. Typically, if you go on SSDI for mental health issues, you're going to stay on for the rest of your life. That's pretty much what it is. And every person on SSDI over a lifetime in today's dollars will cost us a million dollars. So every day we're committing ourselves to... 1.1 billion dollars yeah. of of long-term treatment uh and add up everybody in prison and and then think about kids going on yeah then it's about a million and a half over a lifetime so you know in terms of costs it seems like if we had to increase these um short-term costs that yeah it would be exp more expensive in the short run but in the long run, it's going to save not only the productivity that these people represent, but save just hard dollars. Sure, yeah, I know. That I feel, too, is really, what about the honoring of just that experience, too? You know, and that's, 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 well, that's all, the, the, all of it together is just, it seems like a no-brainer. It seems so clear, you know, what direction we would want to take, you know? Yeah, and that's the other side. You hit on it, yeah. These people are gifted. <laughs> they have, you know, uh, I, unlike you, I've not gone through this, and I, I, and I don't have your gift. Uh, the gifts that these people have in their sensitivities, it can be used, in, and, and this gets into the spiritual aspects of it. Um, we're going down to Brazil where um, it's a much spirituality is looked at very differently down there um, in that uh, there's 50 psychiatric hospitals down there that use mediums mm. much like the Nechung Oracle yeah. channels they use mediums in their treatment they also right alongside the psychiatrist that can prescribe meds the psychologist that can um, do the talk therapy and the family therapist, they have mediums. And so that's part of the, the equation. And they're finding, I, I'm going down there in October to document it. But what I hear is they're finding that that works very well for them. Yeah. And uh, whether it can translate into the belief system of our culture is, is another thing. But we're talking to a lot of people that uh, go back and forth and now there, there are 70 of these centers here in the U.S., these spiritual centers. So um, 
you know, I think it's a very important part of the human psyche, and it's an important part that needs to be addressed. I couldn't agree with you more, and it's really interesting, Phil, because I can hear the naysayers like uh, mediums. Uh, yeah. How 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 are you going to pan that? How are we going to scientifically prove that somebody's an actual authentic medium? <laughs> you know what I mean. You know you know what I'm saying. Like it's I can hear it already, and um, you know I think I think that gift, like anything, you'll get. It's a bell curve, probably in a sense, or maybe not even. But there'll be a percentage who can, a percentage who maybe sort of can, and a percentage who can't. And I don't know what how that plays out. But uh, people want to know, how, how do we discern what is authentic from what is not? Especially in this very uh, kind of cynical uh, uh, culture, you know, society. Because, and it, it, it stands to reason, actually, if you look at the larger context about spirituality and what is spirituality. What is spirituality to us in the West? You know, haven't, uh, we haven't done justice to, to uh, kind of explore or convey what is spirituality. And really, where does spirituality... Uh, exist if not within our own hearts and minds. Beyond that, the Zen master Dogen, who was a 13th century Zen master, I think he brought uh, uh, from one country to another, he brought the, the transmission of Zen. And uh, he said uh, something to the effect, I'll paraphrase, that if you cannot find the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? Yeah. And and so, uh, really, it's it's our disconnection with ourself that we don't understand the gift that we are resting in right now, that this, the cultivation of the appreciation of what is ordinary, you know, what is right before us, you know, isn't that the gift, this body the gift? Like, where does this come from? Do we know? If we don't, then what is it? You know, why don't we explore that question? I find it very interesting. And as you were talking, and you are talking about uh, mediums, which is riddled throughout Unraveling Religions conversations, is The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson, who just passed uh, a little while ago. Oh, and I didn't know he had. Yeah, he just, he oh. just uh, I think, uh, right as his n- latest book had come out. But wow. such a gifted uh, uh, writer and, and yeah. human being. But in, in The Snow Leopard, there's a quote that I, I may have read before in Unraveling Religion, but it totally, you were speaking, and it just, I pulled it up on the internet. I have the computer in front of me, and if I could just read it for a second, maybe we can talk about this. It's a, a Roka quote, and it says, That is at bottom the only courage that is demanded of, demanded of us, to have courage for the most strange, the most singular, and the most inexplicable that we may encounter. It has in this sense been cowardly. He has done life endless harm. The experiences that are so-called visions, the whole so-called spirit world, death, all those things that are so closely akin to us have been daily parried, been so crowded out of life that the senses to which we have grasped them have atrophied, to say nothing of God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's so true. And, you know, when I try it, you ask, well, what is spirituality? Yeah. So I used to, I mean, one definition I use is in terms of is a person spiritual or not or where do they lie on the spiritual spectrum so to speak i think at one end is where you look at yourself as completely as a separate you know you're in this bag of skin and you're separate from the rest of the world and you've been thrown into this world and you know it's kind of a dog eat dog and just you have to survive and that 
feeling of isolation and separateness is at one end. The other end is where you feel unified to everything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you, it's, if somebody explained it as you're a fish made out of water in water. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but so, you know, like Adam and so many of the people we've talked to, when they have this first break, they describe it as blissful. Mm. When it first hits, that he said, this was the first time I had this feeling of I was I was it and it was me. I mean, there was no separation between him and other people, between him and the environment, between the between nature and them. And so he had this feeling of unity. To me, that's being spiritual. Yeah. That's the goal of any spiritual practice is is. And of course, as you go along that that gradient or that continuum, your compassion grows and grows because you become other things. So um, you identify with them more and more, and of course, you're compassionate towards it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you use the word self. That that's a very loaded word. Is it? Uh, is it that isolated being at that one end, or is it? The all that is at the other, yeah. you know. What, what what do you mean when you say the self? That expansion in consciousness of what the self is, we're, we're all trying to expand in in our spiritual journey. Hmm. Yeah, so interesting, and uh, yeah, that expansion also ties into um, karma, which is not not a law. It's just an affirmation of the unity of all existence that how I entreat what is outside of me comes back to me. How could it be another way? Yeah, so, you know, this project for me is a very interesting one because it goes to the root of consciousness, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, what what is consciousness? And when we interviewed Stan Groff, Stanislav Groff, who is a transpersonal psychologist, much out of the Jungian, Carl Jungian tradition, yeah. he said... To think that the brain is where consciousness comes from, the, the brain produces consciousness, uh, is to think like, so if you have a TV set, you want, the programming on it isn't what you want. You don't want to watch the evening news, you want to, you want to watch um, Netflix or something else. <laughs> well, if you call... TV repairman to come over there and change the tubes and the resistors and whatsoever, you know, or, or say you you want the evening news to be more positive or, or more frightening or whatever. You call the TV repairman to work on the resistors and everything to make that programming more of what you want it to be. He, he, he says that's what you're doing if you're looking at the brain and trying to put the chemicals in the brain to make its consciousness change. Right. Consciousness is, call it the great spirit, call it God, call it what you will, is... Um, the brain interprets it. It 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 it, it, it isn't. Um, it it's created by consciousness. The brain, the body, everything is created by consciousness. Mm. That's that's the way he put it, anyway. Yeah. So it you know it kind of resonated with me. I have to stop and think about it a bit. Yeah, but 
that and of course you start talking in those realms it, we haven't got the language that really can do it justice and it becomes very abstract and but that's why the Dalai Lama comes out and says you know my religion is simple I just practice kindness yeah. <laughs> that's my spiritual journey and by the way um, part of our movie we're interviewing I'm going to go this October and interview the um, oracle that started me on this journey. He's now oh, yeah. two years old. Okay, this culture, talking about mediums, you know, what? what what's this deal with mediums? Uh, what value is there? Well, one of the ways in the, so me as a filmmaker, I've got to somehow make it relatable or put some sort of stamp of approval on it. So I know that the Dalai Lama has come out and said, you know, you in the West may think this is strange, but we actually get valuable information out of the Nechung Oracle, out of this, the Kutin, the medium. And so that's one way we're doing it is, you know, the stamp of approval of the Dalai Lama, who's highly respected in our culture now um, in the West, is one way. Um, the other way is re really going to go down to Brazil and interview these professors who are in their universities who have studied with professors up here at Duke and the University of Pennsylvania, because there's now starting to be departments of spirituality and health, spirituality and health um, departments. So that'll be another way. And it was just, boy, uh, it was more than that. It was that they conveying about crazy wise uh anything at all is there anything you want to say about it or oh yeah i mean we're 75 percent through the production i still have to still have to do some more investigation like we're going down to brazil we may be going to new zealand where um there's a shamanic tradition down there that's being used in a very effective way but especially up to northern Finland, where open dialogue is. And um, what I want Crazy Wise to do is to really start a conversation. Not that it isn't already started, but I want to be a part of the movement that is now growing to say, yes, there are alternatives to the biomedical approach. And these alternatives aren't to replace the biomedical approach. It's to augment it. Right. It's to balance it. Sure. We're way out of balance now. That isn't going to be my message because I'm, I'm not going to be in this documentary staying, saying what should be or shouldn't be. I, we're just going to present, you know, things we found that where they, they, they find certain methodologies are working. And so we can start talking about them and start talking, what would it take to try them here? My job is to produce a film that's compelling, grabs people, and, and makes them stop and think about the current set of circumstances.